How important are screenwriting books, manuals, guides, rules, templates? This is a question that comes up all the time. There are countless books about how to write a screenplay. One of the most important, famous, popular, well-read is Robert McKee's story. And our guest today is that very same Robert McKee. He has a new book out. Character, The Art of Role and Cast Design for Page, Stage, and Screen. It is available on Amazon. You can check it out. You can read all of his other books, including, of course, Story, Substance, Structure, Style, and the Principles of Screenwriting from back in 1997. I've read a lot of Robert McKee's work. I was really excited to speak with him. He corrected some of my conceptions about his work and its role in screenwriting. I've always been a person who's believed the best rules or guidelines are the ones that help you write or help you write stuff you're proud of and happy to be writing. I think for the most part, Robert agrees. We got into some really interesting stuff as far as theory, specifics. He has a wealth of knowledge about the history of storytelling, and that's, to me, a lot of the fun stuff. But you will definitely come out of this, I think, excited to write because we talk about what makes writing exciting. No rhyme meant that was an accident. Please enjoy. Thanks so much for being here. It's an honor to have you. I've, I've read your books. I studied them. I found myself... I think with story way back when, when I was screenwriting more, I found myself thinking, how am I ever going to remember all of this? Like I was taking <laughs> notes. <laughs> it was like, how, this is all good. How will I remember it? And I tried to apply all of it. And one of the things I love, and I want to talk about the new book, and I want to go back in time and talk about sort of where you started, because I know theater was a huge influence. But one of the things I wanted to ask was, just as an overarching principle sort of do you feel that do you feel that there are truly consistent rules to good storytelling principles of storytelling well, no because I, I i i would never use the word rule and that's right. yeah know, that's that's a mistake to begin with just that word and so the answer of course is no there are no rules the difference is guidelines. Is that how you would say? Well, I use the word principle, right? Um, and so, um, every art form has certain principles, and or even better word, it has um, certain forms. So, for example, um, you almost never paint a painting on a square surface or a round surface because those create symmetry. And in order to create a certain tension, you, have, you need a rectangle. And that's a principle. It's not a rule. If you want to paint in a square, go ahead. You know, <laughs> uh, But you're going to have difficulty creating uh, balance and tension because it'll, everything will want to be symmetrical and, and the energy will dissipate. So and there, there, there are these principles in all art forms. Yeah. And they're there because we've been doing this for tens of thousands of years, 
and um, certain forms affect the human mind in a certain way. Now, if we had one eye in the middle of our forehead, then maybe a square canvas would work. But we are binocular. We have two eyes. And therefore, uh, <clears throat> a rectangular surface just seems to affect the mind more powerfully. Hmm. And so you have, you know, you you're, <clears throat> an art form has certain forms uh, because it's the way in which human beings experience life. It's the way they're senses work, the way their mind works, the way their sense of uh, beginning, middle, and end of the passage of time, their sense of, um, of um, conflict and uh, threat uh, to life. It's on and on. All this lives inside of human beings. And, and as a result, certain art forms establish certain uh, underlying principles and um, but they're just principles. And and so you as I said, if you want to paint on a circle, go right ahead. It because it's not a rule. It's just right. a principle. And but when you do that, if you decide to to ignore the principle, then you're gonna have certain problems which you could solve in some kind of creative way, and a square surface or a circle. Uh, could produce a really wonderful piece of visual art. Why, you know, why not? Right. And so, um, and so that's a long answer to that short question. But no, that's a great answer because that's that's a very good explanation of the difference between a principle and a rule, and what the consequences can be for making a choice, conscious or otherwise, to ignore a principle of story. And also, sort of talks about where. I mean, you just talked about where why principles exist because the human brain works in a certain way or the human physiology exists in a certain way, which brings me to another thought. I think a lot of your, I think you've said before, a lot of what you talk about in terms of story principle comes right from Aristotle. And I'm curious, do you think, or or if you have explained it in the books, forgive me, and maybe you can, you can recap for our audience a little bit, but do those principles that relate to story, just like the rectangle relates to the human eyes, how do those story principles relate to the human being in terms of like how we're create, like what we are physically and mentally? Well, and uh, experientially, of course. To be clear, Aristotle is actually very simple and very clear, but I don't think you could use the word profound in describing uh, the poetics. Uh, he wasn't trying to be profound. He's very profound in, in writing about the ethics and writing about um, uh, human nature and nature itself. But when he's writing about uh, the theater, it's very descriptive and mm-hmm. it's, it's very vivid and very clear but it's, it's relatively simple, simply because what he was working with, which was primarily the, uh, the epics of Homer and the, the plays um, and the Athenian stage, were relatively simple. They're powerful, very tr- powerful tragedies, but they're not, they're not terribly complicated. There's no subtext. Uh, it's all on the nose. 
And yet uh, the events um, in certain plays, of course, are very powerful because they deal with very profound um, moral questions. But Oedipus, I mean, Oedipus, uh, uh, Aristotle. Poetics. Aristotle Aristotle never gets involved in the poetics in talking about the subtext or the the moral implications or a, a sense of fate or whatever. So when you say that mm-hmm. my when you say that my writing is based in Aristotle, well, sure, because he was the first. But there has been tremendous um, writings since Aristotle. It goes far beyond Aristotle. Those uh, writers in the nineteenth century, twentieth century, early twentieth century, and to to today, uh, certainly went well beyond Aristotle. So. But what Aristotle said, you know, were, were obvious truisms. A, a story operates in time. Therefore, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there are people who, obviously ignorant of Aristotle, who, who claim that Aristotle set the standard of the three-act structure. In fact, Aristotle never uses the word act. And in fact, the plays that Aristotle's looking at, especially uh, Oedipus Rex, basically one acts. There are, you know, a hundred minute or less, one acts. And Homer is not a play, nor right. in acts at all. <laughs> no, no, because it's, a, it's an epic. And so it, it, if you, if you, um, if you uh, took the uh, Odyssey or the Iliad and broke it into major turning points, which is the definition of an act, a sequence, scenes and sequences, the climax at a major turning point. If you broke the uh, the Odyssey into acts, I'm sure there are 40 of them. And within those many scenes that yeah, also turn scenes, similarly. Many yeah. scenes, if you, if you, if, if, if I've never done it, but if you sat down, <clears throat> because, you know, there's two storylines. There's not only um, Odysseus's, but there's also the subplot of his son Telemachus searching searching for him. Um, If you took the plot and subplots, yeah, and uh, broke it down into major turning points, you know, there's dozens of them. And uh, the Iliad, less so. But the Iliad has, uh, I don't know, again, 8, 10, 12 major turning points. And so um, one of the problems that you've, you face in this whole business is definitions. Hmm. What can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. What is a scene? What is a sequel? What is an act? And when you get to long form, when you get to long form television series, what is a movement? What Hmm. is, what is it finally a climax? What is a subplot? What is, um, what is, um, um, how do stories, what's the difference between mixing storylines and merging storylines? Mm. And, and um, on it goes. And so there's all of, um, all of these um, elements of story that you can identify, and you've got to give them um, terms so that you can talk to people about them. And but also... In your, by your model, also so they can turn appropriately, right? So there's a polarized, like like it'll start one, like every beat, 
I remember this, every beat, every scene, every sequence, every act has to have like a, a switch, right? It starts one place, ends in another. Yes. Something changes through the course Maybe. of it. So yeah. if you're Maybe. looking at a screenplay and you have like one of these little mini scenes in terms of what a screenplay calls a scene, like half a page and it takes place at one location, it may not represent any kind of turn, correct? So then it's not a scene by your... Yeah, you see, that's, right. That's a that's a very important point because um, Final Draft that I favor, I think it's the best format mm-hmm. system. And Final Draft a couple three years ago gave me, you know, um, put me in the the Hollywood Hall of Fame. Nice, <laughs> congratulations. And so we have a you know we have a nice relationship, but their definition of a scene is not my definition of a scene. And so every time there's a change in in location, they call that a scene. Right. That's only useful for the production manager. Yes. It's not useful for the writer because it's easily, and I give it, you know, those those examples in the book, it's easy to move a scene through time and place and have one scene take place in five different locations and and, right. and and skip through time. It doesn't have to be, I mean, they are consecutive, but they don't have to be a, a, a one leading to the other. So you can have five locations to move a character from, from one charge of value to another charge of value, and it might take all day to get there, but it's only one scene. Sort of like how uh, I feel like you're, Vast experience in the theater background there helps identify a, a, a scene in a play can, or an act or an entire play can be in one physical space, right? But yeah. then there's many little scenes within that. Yeah. But in a movie, it could kind of be the opposite, right? Yeah, but you see, the, the, the influence on my thinking is, uh, is equally the novel. It isn't only the theater. I mean, I right. I was an actor, director in theater, but I, you know, I read a hell of a lot more novels than I ever read plays. So, was that would would the novel be the primary uh, for you? The genesis of some of your thinking about how the principles of structure work in stories? No. Where did it start? Where did your first? Where did you first start having these, recognizing these patterns, and thinking about it all in this way that is now so popular and well, well understood. I see I did my undergraduate, my bachelor's degree is in literature. My master's degree is in theater. And my PhD is in cinema. And when I sat down to do my uh, dissertation, which I which I never finished because I turned it into my book instead. So that um, worked out okay. That worked out. <laughs> But, uh, and so really the genesis of it was um, trying to make um, uh, sense out of story in order to write a PhD dissertation uh, in, in cinema. But when I started, when I did the research, starting with Aristotle and then going through, uh, you know, Horace and, 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 and 2,000 years of, of writing about writing, they all just merged because you know that that old joke about that old story about you know uh, half a dozen blind men examining an elephant. Yeah, I love it. 
I love that yeah. one. Uh, we, it was in, um, we interviewed Frank Oz and, oh, I'm forgetting yeah. his name, but they did the magic show in New York and and that was a big part of it. But yes, I love well, that. I realize that that's, that's writing about writing is like those blind men, all of them with their hands on an elephant. <laughs> in, in other words, they, they, they are all describing the same thing. Whether it's a play or, or film or cinema or, <clears throat> or television, uh, no matter whether it's a, br- a brief work, uh, you know, in a, a little uh, one act or, or uh, you know, 100 hours of a long-form TV series, they're all trying to describe the same thing. Because that form underlies everything in and, and every storytelling medium. But they had their own terminologies. Right. And um, so they disagree. It's because the four blind men are all describing it, but they're, they're describing a trunk as a different item. Right. <laughs> so, you, know, you get to the point, you say, what's a scene? Well, in a novel, a scene tends to be a subject. Chapters tend to be sequences. Parts uh, or books uh, tend to be an act, tend to be, right? And so Uh what you have to understand in these things is the degree of change. A scene is a relatively minor change. It's significant, but it's relatively minor in terms of, of the impact on the character character's life and whether or not that change in that scene pushes the character closer to or further from what they want. And so a scene is relatively minor in terms of its impact on the character's uh, desire. A sequence climax, a series of scenes, creates a moderate change. Uh, a series of sequences brings about an act which is a major change, major turning point, right. affecting the character's movement toward what they want. They're either closer to what they want or further from what they want. And, uh, and in long-form television, a series of, of major turns creates a movement which is a massive change Massive meaning it goes both inward into the characters and outward into society. So the effect yeah. is is doubled. And and so trying to explain to people the nature of change as you know measured, expressed rather in a in a value, positive, negative. Right. In right. terms of what a character wants, and then it and that desire can be conscious and also subconscious. And so a scene could push a character toward what they want consciously and further from what they want really subconsciously. And so it gets very, very complex. Yes. And, um, and because life is very, very complex. Uh, but that sub, the almost the subatomic particle of it is that charge that you mentioned that change at the level of like a tiny shift yeah. on just a beat. Right. And then that it, it kind of grows to each thing. And when you say a movement and, and you talk about long form television, I start thinking, cause I, 
I read story for the first time before I'd watched things like Mad Men, you know, before there were these shows that were doing these bigger arcs. Do you see these sort of like a season of television? Is that now, where does that fall into the concept of, it's like bigger than an act, certainly, right? Bigger than a half season. Do you think writers should start laying those kinds of things out on a charge basis? Yeah, I teach that when I teach... um television, long-form television writing. See, something like Breaking Bad, I'm trying to remember the numbers, but I believe there are 26 storylines. There's a central plot, 25 subplots over, um, you know, five, virtually six seasons. And uh, I broke it into four movements where there's massive change. Right. It has two, when you add up all the acts between the 26 storylines, it's over 250. The central plot alone, the Heisenberg plot, had something like 40 acts. And so, um, and so you, you need an, you need an, it's too much to imagine. In a sense, yes, and, and so, <laughs> it's um, close to the Iliad, right? Exactly. We're getting closer to epic, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But to help you get a, a sense of organization, then I I came up with the notion of uh, movement, which goes from beyond major to massive. Got it, massive, right? Because its impact changes not only the character's life but the whole society. And but it, those four movements in Breaking Bad don't necessarily correspond to seasons. Mm. And so you can't be that pat. You can't just say season is a movement. It may or may not be. It may or may not be. So um, Is it sometimes better almost if it isn't? I don't know if I should even use the word better, but in some ways like leaving, like allowing a story to to be somewhere, as long as all your scenes and, and acts are turning correctly, then it doesn't necessarily matter where the movement turns, right? Because it's building appropriately. Yeah, it just has to progress. And so um, and so where it actually happens within a season or at the end of the season, it's, it's too organic to, um, to make things yeah. like that. You just know it, it has to progress. I mean, how are you going to hold interest for five or six years? Uh, yeah, it's a it's seem- uh, seemingly impossible task. So the, the change, the change, the, prog- the progressions have to get deeper and deeper and wider and wider. That's why, you know, the, those kind of five, six, seven, eight season series are um, very difficult. So what you have instead now a lot is um, something in between. And so you have like Fargo is, you know, each one, each season is what, like eight maybe episodes? And it has one storyline. And it takes eight episodes so that you don't get into that that business of movements. Uh, it doesn't have to become that massive. And so there's a, a lot of series now are, but but they're, there's, they're, but they're still, you know, still long, true long form. I'm watching um, uh, The Godfather of Harlem, which I'm enjoying a lot. It's going into the second season, and uh, the hook at the end of season one was, was terrific. And so... Um, I don't know how many seasons they can keep it going, but if the quality of it stays high like it is, 
then um, you know it it could become another the wire sopranos you know right um well, your recommend is one of, <laughs> I'm definitely going to check it out now. <laughs> Tonight, only on Disney Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record breaking Eras Tour. Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Streaming tonight, only on Disney+. Plus. I was going to ask, because we're starting to talk about, you talked about something that I've always been really fascinated by, so I want to ask more about it. Character, when a movement, things like the, the wants of the character start to go and the impact starts to go outside of themselves, outside of the circle and into the society. And so you've written a book about character, the yeah. art of role and cast design for page, stage, and screen. And I'm really curious about how, hmm, how should I put this? These are, these are such tough questions to, to think about uh, and try to, try to put succinctly. But, you know, reading like Paddy Chayefsky teleplays, sometimes he would have a really powerful story that's just about, you know, a family unit. And it doesn't go beyond that necessarily in terms of impact. But when you're talking about characters and writing great characters and say what happens to Heisenberg, is it necessary to build a character that has an interaction with the society or can you contain it and be just as powerful? Is that a function of how long your story is that you need to start expanding out? The impact needs to be bigger or... I guess tell me a little bit about the idea behind the character book and how it relates to story arc. Well, in terms of an of story arc, there's one chapter in the book that deals with character need. And so if you're going to have a a, a long form we, that we were talking about, you have to start with a character who has a, a tremendous uh, potential as a human being that they have never realized. Mm. That I, I call that need. I mean, everybody uses mm. these terms differently. But in my, my definition, character need is a, a vacancy, an emptiness in the character that needs to be filled. And so this wow. character um, I like that. has potential for, um, for great experience, but they have never... They've got the brains, they've got the passion, they've got the willpower, they, they, they have qualities within them that have great promise, uh, but life has never asked them to be more than they are at this moment. Mm. And so, um, and so you, you're going to design a story that um, causes them to use themselves to the limit of human experience. And often... Um, not always, but often the limit of human experience is tragic. And so the, you know, I think it's um, chapter 11 in the book is called The Completed Character. And so it, it's a principle that you, you know, that in, in not in every story by any means, there, there's a, but in many stories, the good, great stories, you have a character who's incomplete 
They have potential as a human being at the beginning, but they have life has never asked them to become anything that special. But then something's going to happen to them that will um, put them into an experience that will cause them to use themselves and experience themselves to the absolute limit of their humanity. So somebody like Walter White, Breaking Bad, is a completely what I what I call exhausted character. Everything knowable in Walter White has been expressed. Everything potential within him has been fulfilled. He is completely emptied out. He has experienced himself to the utter limits, and uh, there's nothing <laughs> left. But he started with all that unfulfilled. He started exactly the way you described. Yeah. He's like a picture yeah. of that unfulfilled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, he was he was full of potential, and Heisenberg was always in him but never used. Mm. The, the two principles, you know, that, that in terms of the relationship between character and story, the two principles you're operating always with are revelation and change. And there's a fetish in, in writing that you, uh, all characters must change. You must change, you know, somehow you have to mm-hmm. get a character arc. And that's nonsense. Mm-hmm. That's real nonsense. Yes. The, vast majority, <laughs> the vast majority of central characters of protagonists in the vast majority of novels, plays, and films do not change. This is one of, I'm so glad we got to this. I was stumbling trying to get there. This is one of my favorite things that I remember from your books was this idea. I try to tell people this, but I never do it articulately because well, I love it. So please what, go on. <laughs> what people don't understand is what they are is revealed. You don't know who they are. You don't know what their potential is. You don't know them at the beginning of a story. They just step on to the stage or the screen or the page and things happen and an exciting incident puts, puts their life out of balance and they begin to pursue a desire. And when they make choices and take actions, we discover who they are and what changes is our understanding of the character. Mm, we didn't that. know who they were. <laughs> we didn't know who the person was at the beginning. And at the end, we now understand them who they are. They were pushed to the place where they revealed something about who they were. Yeah, absolutely. Sure of right. Yeah, and what I think goes on is that people who talk, who write about writing, mistake revelation for change. So the characters revealed. We know who they are. Our understanding has changed, but the character is essentially exactly who they were at the beginning of the story. And this is, but we didn't know them. So, and this is what the the vast majority of stories. What changes is not only our understanding, but the outer circumstances of the character's life. Yes. What what um, what we call plots of fortune. Plots of fortune are stories that change the outer circumstances of a character's life. So they go from being lonely to in love and married. They go from um, a world of injustice, they solve a crime, the world out, they change the world back to justice. So the, the, the outer, the fortunes, the outer circumstances of a character's life change, 
And for better or worse, they're alive or they're dead at, at the end. And, <laughs> and we know who they are. Right. I've, I've mistakenly referred to it simply as being sometimes a character changes, sometimes the world around them changes. It doesn't need to be both. Well, in, in, most, in most stories, the, 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 the outer circumstances of the character's life, the world, so to speak, change right. uh, for better or worse. But there are six genres of character change in which the character is not only revealed, but they change over the course of the story. And so this, the book I've written takes a look, of course, at those six genres in which um, characters actually do arc. And they are not the same human being at the end of the story they were at the beginning. And you aren't saying that that is necessarily a better kind of story. It's no. just a different, right? No, no. And I, I want to ask you something that that's specific to, I think, a lot of the conversations that happen in and around Hollywood these days. And I'll use some, you know, popular, some of the more popular subjects. You'll often hear that Superman is a bad character, right? Have you heard this sort of like, he's not an interesting character because... I mean, I mean I guess badly, badly written. Right, or or that there's nothing interesting to do with him. You'll yeah, hear yeah. that too. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, but but Spider Man is because he has like internal strife or, so, or self doubt. Superman's too perfect. Mm -hmm. But I always sort of push back on that because I think, but so many stories that are great that go way back in time aren't about characters who have internal issues or need to change. They're just yeah. about characters who change the world around them because the world is, as you said, going from unjust to just. Can you explain for everyone why, like, I mean, you've already have, but why is it that, are people too upset? My, my thesis is, I think people are too concerned with the idea of a character needing to change and not enough with the idea that there can be things revealed or that the world around them can change. What is it people are upset about when it comes to Superman, for example, or a Christ-like well, figure are, like that? You know, superheroes are simple simple characters. Given, you know, what we've been through for the last few centuries, most people understand that, this, you know, Europeans, for example, cannot create Superman or characters of that ilk. They love American films and they love, they enjoy superheroes and supervillains when the Americans make them, but they themselves cannot make those stories, never have, because it's in their culture, they just don't believe that anyone or anything can be that simple. But when, <laughs> but when the Americans do it, it's fun. It's fun. But they themselves can't. And, and so and that's true in, in our country as well, that people naturally feel that these, these archetypes, these symbols of heroism and villainy are are. Un, not obviously fantasy and unrealistic, but yes. somehow um, a violation of uh, of um, what we understand to be human nature, right? And, and so they, you know, they, there are people who shun these things. But then, you know, look at all the gazillions of people spending gazillions of hours uh, playing video games, and there's no there's no great character psychology in video games. It's fun. It's a, you know, it's fun. The spectacle of um, superheroes 
is far more important than the psychology of superheroes. So, uh, right. So I, you know, I understand, but you know, I, I've got a book I'm bringing out. Some maybe by the end of this year, we'll see on uh, writing action. Hmm. It's called the action, the art of excitement. It's exciting. It's fun. And, and then, you know, a hero is an altruistic psychology a person who is willing to sacrifice their life for other human beings. And the villain is a narcissistic personality who uh, will sacrifice other human beings for himself. And mm. so, uh, you know, those are polar opposites. And, and the fun is, um, is figuring out, watching how they go about doing it. I want to bring up a, a character who's a very different character than Superman, who you wrote about a lot, who I love, is Rick Blaine. Um, but he is, he is altruistic ultimately, right? Can you tell me about how he works in the context of, of characters, in the annals of characters in arcs? Because you wrote about him in story, and yeah. I'm curious, does he fit into one of the six genres? Does well, he change in your he mind? Does. He does. He, he, um, he undergoes a redemption plot. I mean, when you, when you look at character, if you want to create complex characters who undergo change, you have to ask, what can you change in a human being? Mm. And in my analysis, there's only three things. You can change oh, a character's morality. You can change their mentality. Or you can change their humanity. If you change a character's morality, they they start as a good person and they degenerate into a bad person or the other way around. They start morally negative and they change to the morally positive. If you change somebody's mentality, they come into the world with a certain way of thinking, certain attitude toward life, optimistic, pessimistic, whatever. But it's their, their mentalities, how they see life and themselves in it. And you could start them at the negative, they're pessimistic, turn them to the positive, optimistic, or the other way around. And then you can change a character's humanity. They come into the story with a certain development in their humanity. They're at a certain stage in their life where they're either less than the human being they could be, or as complete a human being as they ever will be. And you can reduce their humanity. <laughs> and we all it's a sad story. <laughs> Drug addiction, right. alcoholism, yeah. obsessions of all kinds, peel the person's humanity away. Or you can um, take them from immaturity to maturity. You can, or whatever. Uh, you, if there's very, you know, whatever quality of humanity, and you can move it from the negative to the positive. And so, with all three of those, I want to highlight for everyone listening what I what I love. When you first mentioned the three, I thought I really wonder how these three break down. And as you break them down, I, I love that once again it comes back to a positive or a negative charge within yeah. the context of each of those three things. All it is, it's not like mentality, not like what they think about life. It's a negative approach or positive approach. They right. go from one to the other. Right. Keeping it that simple, I think as complex as these things become, that landmark helps us to understand and wrap our minds around why the story would work. That's absolutely true, George. Because 
people can, you know, the thinking in a human being, for example, changing their mentality, the thinking in a human being can become extremely complex, of course. But then the writer looks at it, says, is this person, how do they see the world and themselves in the world? Is it overall positive or overall negative? And arriving at, at a, just, you know, a sense, it's one or the other. Then you know where, this, where the story could arc, where the change could take place. They could go from being less to more or more to less. And so Rick Blaine, for example, at the beginning of Casablanca, is um, living an immoral life. He um, has, runs a corrupt casino. <laughs> where he cheats people out of money because his roulette table is fixed. Right. And, and um, now he's a Robin Hood in the sense that he, he's supporting a lot of refugees who work for him, but he's basically immoral. He's, he's a thief. Does that Robin Hood aspect is that does that apply to the idea of the there's a potential there that's not re- yet revealed yes. sort of a potential yes, of good of or, if, yeah. if he was a total thief he wouldn't give any of his employees any more than necessary <laughs> but he's not right. right um and politically he's given up on the world he doesn't care right. about the war he doesn't care about politics or peace versus uh, warfare and so forth he doesn't care he's lost all caring about other people, and he's running a corrupt um, establishment. And um, and he arcs then from a character who's uh, turned his back on society to a character uh, who, who used to be. He redeems himself for what the man he used to be, and he goes back to being a um, uh, you know a fighter for peace and justice in the world, anti-fascist. And he goes from being immoral to moral. So um, and so, he's, it's a redemption plot for him. He goes, he's cynical at the beginning. So he is one of the six. He's a he's an example of one of the six genres. Yeah, yeah. He's, a, he's he's a redemption plot. He's a, his morality moves from negative to positive. Right, and a, a morality moving from a positive to negative could be. I'm trying to think maybe like a mafia, maybe like Michael Corleone. Is he an example of that? Michael's a perfect example. By the end of Godfather 2, he's absolutely, totally lost. Well, actually, I would take it further than that. I would think that um, that, uh, Godfather is is a – Godfather 1, his morality moves from positive to negative. Right. But Godfather 2, his humanity. Ah, yeah. Has been lost, so it takes a new thing to, yeah. to polar to shift yeah, to a second gear, even, even right. deeper, because he's destroyed. He's obsessed with mafia values, and he's destroyed everyone around him. Do you think a writer starting out with a story, if you were going to their their script? If you were going to advise them, because I've heard so many things as we've talked that made me think, oh, that sounds like a, a good idea. That sounds fun. That's like, and that's exactly what you want, right? Like, but what would you advise them? Where would you advise them to start thinking? Could, should they start with the character? Should they start with thinking about these things? Like, where, what's a good starting point? 
whatever the first idea comes to mind. I mean, it really doesn't matter. <laughs> right? You might start with an idea for a character. And then you'd have to ask the question, you know, given this character, what's the, the worst thing that could happen to them? Or what's the best thing that could happen to them? And how would either of those bring about raising within them a desire to restore the balance of life? Or you could start out with an event. Suppose, you know, X were to happen and you have an event in mind. Then you look at that event and say, you know, what kind of person would um, be really um, uh, uh, changed or affected or thrown out of balance by this this event? I'm I'm doing a a series of webinars right now on the thriller, and there's there's a wonderful, uh, uh, excellent new thriller that came out uh, just recently that begins with a scene of road rage. Hmm. Two drivers um, almost hit each other. He looks at her and gives her a dirty look or says, you know, watch where you're going. And she gives him the finger. Now, you don't know anything about those characters, okay? It just, right. right? And suddenly, what she doesn't realize is that giving that guy the finger, he's going to stalk her and kill her if he can. <laughs> okay? And so you look at that and you say, what would happen if one driver gave another driver the finger, not knowing that the person he gave the finger to is a psychopath? <laughs> right. or, it's just a question. Or right. it's you just... could start with a psychopath. Right. Suppose I have a character who is raging inside, hating life, hating everything. Everything in his life is a disaster. He's right on the edge of, of, you know, of being put in an asylum or suicide or whatever. And then you could look at that person and say, you know, what would happen? What could happen to that raging personality that would set him into a horrible course of action? And you think, I know what. Somebody gives him the finger. Right. Okay. And that turns him. This is a. This, have you seen this film? It's called Unhinged. Yeah, it was the Russell Crowe, right? Yeah. yeah. Right. Yes. And so, and so, you could start with a Russell Crowe and say, "What would happen?" Somebody gives him the finger, or you could start with road rage. One driver gives the other driver the finger, and off we go. So, right. It doesn't. You don't see that. It's a. It's it's a two sided coin. If you start with character, you have to figure out what would happen to this person that would cause them to live life and express themselves to some, you know, limit or, you know, the other way around. And so whether you start with an event and then create a character, you start with a character and then figure out an inciting incident is, is not important. You have to do both, obviously. And what order in which those two occur is not important. So what matters is that you approach it by creating that dynamic, not what the piece that first comes is. The dynamic, having the dynamic in mind or the ideas of the necessity, the necessary pieces that will make a story dynamic 
are the yeah, critical. And, it, it, and I'm what the what I'm just describing is the inciting incident in relationship to the protagonist. But it it could be the first thing that comes into your mind could be you know somebody's um, uh, in a, a job in an office and they're called into the boss's office and suddenly given a promotion that they never expected. And it looks positive, but suddenly, you know, fear. Okay. Um, right. And, um, and you, um, and you go, but that, that is like a turning point somewhere in the middle. So now you got to go back saying, why would somebody getting a promotion raise all that fear in them? Who is this person? How did their life begin? What caused, you know, and you go back and you, and you, I don't know what, you know, you put them in, yeah. you put them in a, in a university setting and they're just graduating and la-di-da and they got certain, um, you know, parents, certain relationships and so forth. Yes. And um, I like that. And so that's what I, what I, what I meant when I said, it doesn't matter. You can start right. in the middle. You can start in the beginning. You could start with a great climax. You could start with something that's actually going to end up in the backstory. You could start with a character. It doesn't matter. What matters is that your mind has a full vision of story, characters, mm. and events, and that you're a storyteller, that you're capable of thinking on all of those levels in terms of characters and their dimensionality and complexities, life and family, employment and war, you know, or like, um, uh, you know, Nomad Land. Nomad Land was wonderful. It was kind of um, Taoism illustrated, hmm. you know, a human being trying to come into harmony with nature. And so you could start with a theme. You know, you start with an right. idea and then you f- that right. the problem, you start with problem in life. The problem in life is that we have cut ourselves off from the natural flow of things, and that is Taoism. That's ancient Chinese Taoism. I don't think it's an accident that the director of that film is Chinese. Hmm. But that is a that's neither a character, right, or an inciting incident. Or an inciting incident. It's a theme. Yeah. It's a, an idea. People are not living in harmony with the natural world. And um, and so out of that idea, you create a character who did, who, who's, who, was, who was out of harmony, living in a company town. Her husband dies, and she starts wandering, and she's offered to go back into society with, by a guy who's a good guy, by a sister who'll take care of her. And she keeps rejecting them because there's something in her that says, um, I'm out of sync with reality. And she's trying mm. to find that. And um, yes. she ends up staring out at the Pacific Ocean. Whatever. Okay. So yeah. Yeah. It, 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 you can start with an idea. You start with the character. Start with events. You start with just a setting. But if you're truly a writer, you have a massive understanding of setting character, event, psychology, sociology, you have a vision of the world and you understand all of those parts 
ultimately have to fit and harmonize to make meaning and move emotions. And so all this talk about where do you start is really amateur. Because the actual execution, the knowledge of the bigger picture and the canvas. A fine artist, a professional artist, doesn't worry about things like that. Okay. Right. Their mind, their mind is full of images and ideas and people and politics and nature and every other. And their their thoughts are churning all the time. They know what ultimately they have to create and where they start and how they proceed. I, I've written enough scripts to know that every single screenplay I ever wrote started in a different place. Sometimes characters, sometimes setting, sometimes an event, sometimes a genre. I mean, they all started in a different place. It didn't matter. Ultimately, they had to get written. Right. <laughs> they were something. Something came to you that then became a story yeah. from some other point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I can't thank you enough. This has been really, really great. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much to Robert McKee for coming on the No Film School podcast. Be sure to check out the book, Character, The Art of Role and Cast Design for page, stage, and screen. Check out his other books. Go to nofilmschool.com. Hey, we have our own How to Write a Screenplay ebook. All you have to do is sign up for our newsletter, which will get you all kinds of cool stuff and notify you about everything we're doing on nofilmschool.com. Please also be sure to check out our gear guides and our entertainment news if that's something that's interesting to you. It's on the sidebar of the homepage, nofilmschool.com. Rate, like, and subscribe to the podcast. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, check us out on Instagram. And as always, thanks so much for listening.